0: Welcome to The Real Python Podcast. This is episode 177. You may remember a recent Python Package Index announcement about hiring a full-time security engineer. We've also mentioned several current security initiatives by PyPI. This week on the show, we talk with Mike Fiedler about accepting this new role and securing accounts on PyPI. Mike talks about how he started as a contributor to PyPI and eventually became a maintainer. We talk about why he fits this new role well, and his responsibilities. We discuss the initiative to secure accounts using two-factor authentication methods. Mike also explains how package maintainers can adopt a new, more secure publishing method called trusted publishing that doesn't require long-lived passwords. We also discuss Mike's recent talk titled, How to Give Back to Open Source Without Losing Your Mind. Mike shares advice and resources for finding your own contribution entry points. All right, let's get started. The Real Python Podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python. In the real world. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. Each week, we feature interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com. Hey, Mike, welcome to the podcast. Hey, glad to be here. We're here to talk about, well, partly your new role with PyPI, and then also to get people even more informed about the changes to uh, adding 2FA to all the PyPI contributions. Uh, we've mentioned it a couple of times as news articles across here, but it's nice to have somebody who's uh, in an official capacity come on and, and discuss it with us. Um, official. Ooh. Yeah, exactly. So maybe we start with your role is PyPI safety and security engineer. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about what does that role entail?
1: Absolutely. So... For for some background, right? PyPI is the Python package index, which is maintained by a group of small group of volunteers and a lot of contributors. And it is managed and hosted and funded by the Python Software Foundation, the PSF. PSF is a nonprofit that works on establishing the the best possible way to use Python and the ecosystem around it, including the packaging ecosystem. And it's a r- relatively small nonprofit. I know that you've had uh, Seth Larson on the show. He's is the, uh, the PSF or the overall Python security developer in residence. And then we also have Lukash Langa, who's the developer-in-residence for Python. Yeah, yeah. And those folks are kind of the the broader ecosystem or the the Python language runtime. And when some funding came around, thank you to Amazon Web Services to invest in making PyPI.org, the package index, a safer place to both upload and use packages, I threw my hat in the ring, having been a PyPI volunteer maintainer for a couple of years. A lot of other great folks put their names in, but went through the process and uh, got hired to focus predominantly on the impact of PyPI in the packaging ecosystem and how to make that more secure, how to make it safe for all of the users, both you know corporations, individuals, scientific researchers, yeah, anybody on the planet and beyond. Yeah, yeah. We
0: we always talk about the the mass amounts of resources there at PyPI, and so it's nice to have someone else who's in a full-time paid role to sort of watch over the security of it. That's fantastic.
1: Yeah, up until now, it's been pretty much, you know, I, I came on as the first new PyPI maintainer, like full-time maintainer, not not full-time, but volunteer maintainer a couple of years ago. Okay. But it's largely been just three folks over, over the last decade or so who've been kind of at the forefront of handling all of the different feature requests. I, I mean, yes, there have been... Uh, different funded contract work by different uh, parties to get specific features, but there's been very much a a, a really small core maintainer volunteer group. And E. Durbin, the Director of Infrastructure, yes, is an employee of the PSF, but has only been dedicating a portion of their time to PyPI because they have to worry about all of the things. So when AWS and some other funders came up with some funds to say, we'd like to put some more power behind pypi safety it was it was great we can take these funds we can run with them we can focus on other parts that aren't just volunteer contributions as it were
0: what made you decide you wanted to initially contribute to pypi what was something that was like a deciding factor It's like oh, i want to get involved in this
1: yeah, it's a fun story. So I've been I've been in software development and engineering and systems and management and everything for you know roughly thirty years or so, and I've done it across a couple continents, a bunch of different startups and enterprises. Checked out my LinkedIn; it's it's very uh, fun to read. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, I had always been exposed to Python as of I guess two thousand seven two thousand eight was when I started actually using it for for kind of work things. Yeah, and it's a very pleasant language to work in once you kind of figure out some of the, the the quirks. Back then, it was Python two, and then progressively over over the course of the twenty years since. I've been contributing to open source in a variety of different ways. I worked a lot on the Chef community and wrote a lot of Ruby and cookbooks uh, over there and starting to dig into the different tools that I was using, which are mostly open source, right? We, We use a lot of open source. I started to see, okay, here's a bug. I can find the bug because it's open source, I can read through all the code. I can't necessarily fix it. I know I'm not that good yet, but at least I can report it to the authors. And this is back on, you know, early days of GitHub, Google CodePlex, and SourceForge, of course, to kind of let people know. So I started getting engaged with the open source community. And then when I started seeing that, hey, I can do this too, I can create packages, I can create things that are useful to me and share them with others, that kind of fed this desire to produce more utility, to produce more valuable things. And just having open source as the forefront of a here's here's something that we all rely on yeah now it's time to give it back right like every company I've worked for has used piles and piles of open source so not every company is dedicating engineers to work on it but it's a great opportunity for engineers to kind of pick up new, and interesting parts of their career because it's like, all right, well, it's not, this is not for work. I could do this for fun. Yeah. And, that, and that's also a, a great way to do it. And when it came to PyPI and why I got involved there, well, I use Python a lot, right? You know, over, over the course of different companies, I've, I've moved off of Ruby predominantly into Python land and you know, I moved more into management. And as a manager, you know, you do less and less hands-on development, right? At a certain scale, right? I was a senior director of engineering at one startup. I was a uh, VP over at another enterprise. And, you know, I always like to solve puzzles and open source (laughs) is a great way to solve puzzles, it's uh, it's a way to stay involved and stay empathetic with the engineers who worked for me. To say, you know what, I uh, I know your pain, I know what you're feeling. If you're telling me this is going to take a lot longer, it's not you're you're complaining and it's you know you're trying to beat the clock or be lazy. It's no, this is actually really hard. Yeah. So uh, as a way to continue to build that empathy, I, I just kept uh, contributing to open source in my spare time. And with PyPI specifically, there was this one little feature that I wanted. There was one feature. It always <laughs> starts with like one little thing. Sure, sure. And it was, I wanted the, uh, on the main page of, of pypi.org, there's a search bar at the top. And through Quirks and other websites, you kind of learn keyboard shortcuts, right? If you've, uh, if you've ever turn on keyboard shortcuts for Gmail then you learn those if you've ever used vim you kind of need to know all of your keyboard <laughs> shortcuts or
0: you'll never exit <laughs> you'll never
1: exit but if you uh, if you pick up uh, VS code or PyCharm right I'm a right. big PyCharm user now then you need to kind of learn these keyboard shortcuts cuz they will make you more effective you can live without them yeah. but they will make you more effective and Going to the PyPI.org website, there's a search bar. I naturally just hit the slash key uh, to focus hop the there. search bar. Yeah. To hop there, yeah. right? And that's a, that's a behavior. I don't know who came up with it, but somebody came up with it. And now it's like, oh, I, I do that to su- so focus search bar. Yeah. Uh, I think even Google does it now, which is great. But PyPI didn't have it. And it was like, all right, well, that's something that I think I can figure out. Okay, So I spent some time. I checked out the code. I read the dev docs. I, I figured out how, how some stuff was broken and fixed the dev environment. Like, there was a bunch of stuff that it was like, okay, this needs to be brushed up. And then I got my feature and uh, and sent it up there and got some good feedback from the existing maintainers. And after I finished that, one of them was like, hey, what do you think about this, right? You want to try this one. It's like, oh, okay. I'll, I'll try and figure that one out. Right, right. Because like the maintainers, they you know they obviously have a better idea of what's in the like the issue backlog and kind of where to point people's efforts. So it was like, right,
0: right. I think you might be good for this thing. Yeah, yeah.
1: So, oh, yeah. And like, what's what's crazy is that feature was very much JavaScript, and that's not my strongest language. Sure. And I was like, I I can do this. I can I can figure this out. <laughs> and since it's it's been I you know I took the time to revamp the entire Java. Script stack and asset building for pypi so that way it, it's it's a lot nicer for developers uh, or contributors who want to work on it and then got more into the python side of pypi so it was really just a uh an excellent way of like oh i i, I want this thing i think this thing should exist i could ask for it no one's going to do it uh, uh because like it's not their priority right and if it was they would have right so it's like if if you're not willing to like put in the time to give back, then like all right, and you're just you're just kind of asking for somebody to do free work for you whereas here it was like no, I will I will put in the time and effort to to figure this out.
0: Yeah, cool. In the new role that you're taking on here, what are you
1: most excited about? So, in this role, I think the important parts are really focusing on the security aspects because again it's an it's an ecosystem of packaging and like there's there's any number of things that one could do but by having some focus on safety security it helps kind of narrow my 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 focus onto well i could do a thousand things here are the three that i should do right now okay and and that kind of helps anybody very clearly define what it is they're they're going to do next
0: yeah okay and so is there a background you have in securing things like this, or, or as you talked about a variety of different ecosystems? And then, I guess, maybe related to that, what are what are the concerns that IPI has towards security? Maybe we can talk some history there.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, some folks might say, "Okay, uh, Mike doesn't have you know a, a pure like uh, security background," and it's like you're right. I, I'm not a uh, like a network security engineer, that's something that exists. But I have been a part and a leader for a bunch of security initiatives and platforms and, and stuff throughout my, my tenure as a engineer, engineering manager, that kind of positions me in a spot where it's like, okay, I'm not just worried about like the security finding, I'm also worried about like sustainable building of a secure outcome. So it's, it's not always that I have to be the expert, but I have to be the knowledgeable generalist who can pull in expertise or rely on expertise of others right. in order to achieve the, the desired outcome. For instance, I did a post, of, we, we blog on blog.pypi.org, I did a post on just measuring our inbound malware reporting. Hmm. So, uh, what what happens a lot is people will put together uh, a malicious package with some garbage name, and they'll sign up for an account on PyPI because it's a free service, and they will upload a, uh, a package that has some malicious intent, right? Very often, it's, you know, when the user installs it, uh, look for any kind of environment variables that look interesting, and then post them to some, you know, harvester. Yeah. So, we partner with a bunch of different volu- again volunteer security research teams that will report those to us. And th- today the reporting process is very much email us to a uh, security inbox and we then analyze their their report and then we we take a look at what what the uh, you know what the indicators are and make a an informed decision as a maintainer as, as an admin of the uh, the service what to do next. So when it came time to say, all right, well, how how bad is this? How how often does this happen? I sat down and said, okay, let's analyze analyze the data. Right. You know, I can I can come up with some ideas. But doing the data analysis is not necessarily a security competency, if you will, right? Right. But like building a, a tool to scrape through Google email messages and look for the particulars and then produce results and do some data analysis and graphing. like That's not a security role, but it is very much a, a comprehensive analysis role for how we're doing on a security front. Yeah, yeah. And you can read that on blog.pypi.org.
0: Yeah, we, we love digging into those kinds of things and keeping people aware of, hey, this is what's happening out there and you know you need to be aware of it so i see that your role is a lot of troubleshooting and and problem solving and do you feel like you're going to be pivoting a lot and, and using lots of different skills that you've developed across the the spectrum
1: I mean, I certainly hope so, right? Like right now, some of my focus is very much on malware and and this this topic of malware and malicious package reporting. There's an enormous amount of focus in the industry around software package repository security and dealing with malware and reducing the time malware is potentially out there, reporting vulnerabilities, and... That, that's very much where I'm focused right now, is how do we optimize this process? How do we make it easier for folks to report to us and with the structured information that we want, as well as what do we do as admins? How can we reduce the burden on admins and get to the point where we're almost Semi-automated in in our reactions, so that way we can reduce the amount of human oversight is absolutely necessary. Obviously, there's still plenty that's going to require human intervention and analysis. But okay. the the more we can automate, the better, right? Then we can do more with our time.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I feel maybe a lot of the attacks are automated, and so it's like using bots against bots. <laughs> a little ways. bit, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk. Let's transition to that idea of like what's happening with, uh, this is a, a program that's started uh, almost a year and a half ago, is that right? To get 2FA uh, happening with PyPI. Um, maybe we can talk about the background of it and then the the current push and deadlines, if you will. Yeah, absolutely.
1: So the topic of uh, software supply chain is is on kind of every chief uh, information officer and, and CTO's mind because this is a topic that continues to evolve, right? Because open source is so prolific and, and is an out there prevalent, if you will, out there in the world, we're all using it well, how do I know what what I'm using and how do I trust what I'm using? Yeah. So there's a variety of different initiatives going on around, okay, well, how do I create software attestations? How do I get a software bill of materials so I know what I have? Yeah, yeah. And all of those are really, really important because they kind of give you that confidence in I know what I have, but they all kind of fail on this one one point is like, well, okay, just because I have it, is it good? Is it any good? Is it safe? So some notable kind of so- software supply chain vulnerabilities that have been in, kind of reported in the past are when somebody who had you know a, a package that is of some popularity, and that maintainer loses control of their you know their their publishing account, mm. right? The the whether that be through you know an API token leak, you know maybe they swipe their their laptop at uh, at some event and then you know that was improperly secured and now there's a token that was valid. Hey, we can upload a new version of this very popular Python package to the registry and it says it's from me and everyone will trust that because it's me, right. but it contains some new malicious stuff in it. So in order to kind of combat that behavior, we've also tried to enact that like, okay, well, let's reduce the ability to use a username and password to upload to pypi.org, right? Okay. You Instead of using a username and password, you should use a, an API token right? Why? Because those are a little easier to track and we can kind of invalidate those without invalidating a user account, which that's great. But even better is, all right, well, what if that user password was, was obtained and somebody can log in and create a new API token, right? There's nothing stopping them from doing that. So how do we combat what's called account takeover? OK, right. So if the account is taken over, whether it be by, OK, I got access to your computer and I, I got in there or I did a credential stuffing attack and used the password on a similar website. And now I'm into PyPI or even even kind of uh, another one is a domain expiry attack, which is fascinating. So let's say you signed up for PyPI with, you know, your your Christopher at realpython.com. Yeah. If realpython.com expires and you forget to renew it because people are people and we forget to renew things, right?
0: How many domains do I have? (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) How many email addresses? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. (laughs) Uh, But if you use that and it expired and someone else registers that domain and sets up an email recipient of Christopher, they can reset that account and now they can be you right? Yeah. So, I mean, all indicators say they are you, right? The email, the password reset. Right. So, um, uh, 2FA or, or multi-factor authentication is the best way to combat that type of, of, uh, account takeover attack because it's not only the email address, it's something else, right? Okay. That's the M or two in, 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 it's a second factor. Yeah. And, is it the best and end all of security no but it's better than not right like it's better than nothing <laughs> so it's a step in the right direction and the the like this isn't just me saying this right this is on the oas top 10 list of vulnerabilities or weaknesses that companies websites services should be looking at to address because it's like this is the top 10 right there's there's a lot more that you could do but you should probably focus on the top ten because those are the ones that are that you know a lot of independent research has gone into to say here's here's some not easy wins but these are the ones that attackers are most likely to go after uh, uh, services that don't have this.
0: Okay, so this is the the common vector that infection, if you will, is coming through. We got to like pay attention to this and and think about it. Yeah, yeah. There's a variety of. Ways to do the two factors I've had a conversation about some of the more modern ones that are slowly rolling out things like pass keys and then i I know we mentioned in our news articles the i think it was at the announcement of doing this program where the top one percent of packages were given like a hardware uh version of a key. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that and uh, the ways of that you guys are looking at doing two f a
1: yeah, absolutely. Um, so we we added the second factor or two FA uh, ability to PyPI at least two to three years ago. I don't remember the exact date. Okay, and it was an option, right? You could use this to secure your account. Uh, it's great. You know, anyone who wants to secure their account can. And as a as a feature, that's great. And as we progress, we we started to see you know increasing. Uh, discussion on the internet around like okay well here are other vulnerable areas so we followed patterns that other other folks have done and implemented to start somewhere right so we started with the just top one percent by download which is uh not not a trivial amount of, of packages right like yeah well, pypi currently hosts roughly about half a million different packages a lot of those are quite popular because they're used in like different ecosystems or SDKs that are, that are widely used across the internet. So they get a lot of traffic. And if one of those got compromised, the impact to the world would be quite catastrophic. It could be right. Yeah. Yeah. And so it it was just an arbitrary selection of, okay, 1%. Let's start there.
0: Well, it makes sense because even when you were talking about your own contributions and uh, we've mentioned a handful of other people that have their own small projects where they're literally scratching their own itch and it's not going to become part of you know a, a a bill of materials potentially of other large corporations and so forth and where it's going to affect it so that it totally makes sense i mean if you were to do a, the number of downloads i'm i'm sure the top 1% is the the thing that's getting downloaded the most so, right
1: yeah. and uh, again like this was only as a starting point it wasn't like these are the ones that we deem are necessary it was, it was like no let's just start here and we also had kind of calculated got uh, a, a really nice donation from uh, google to give out two titan keys these are hardware Keys as a second factor that work with our authentication scheme to anybody in the that top one percent who wanted them for free. Right now, there were obviously some restrictions; they couldn't be shipped to every country. But like generally speaking, that's a lot of hardware keys that that Google put up and and gave out, and we were happy like we to just give them. Here's the link, and just go buy it from Google. They will send it to you. Nice. We're we're just trying to help here, right? <laughs> um, yeah. And uh, something you said was very interesting, like oftentimes somebody who's creating open source software doesn't intend for it to get downloaded by a megacorp, but if it's a really useful tool, right, then it could become, right? Like if I write a little widget that a mega corp thinks is, is going to make their site or, or stack that much better, Great. Uh, that's kind of what open source is. Right. The push to get 2FA is, well, they want to trust whatever you put up there is still what what they asked for, and you are who you say you are. Yeah. So this is just an extra layer. So we, we kicked off that initiative for that top 1%, and we've slowly been kind of ratcheting down different other features in PyPI in order to encourage more use of 2FA to the point where, Earlier this year, in May, we, we pretty much publicly came out with an announcement and said, by the end of 2023, everyone's got to do it. Okay, we're we're just going to turn it on for everybody. This this one percent critical product doesn't matter at the end of this year, right? That was just a, a way to get the ball rolling, get people involved, get people. It also helped us as maintainers understand how uh, you know people are interacting with the two FA sign up, how they what what account recovery looks like you know, as part of our process, we were showing people recovery codes and asking them to store those. And very often people will see a a screen and just click next and not, not actually retain those. So now we've, added a step in the process to say no not only do you need to have the recovery codes on the next page you're going to need to use one to prove that you copied them because <laughs> like you should be keeping these are just like your password you should download them and store them securely right uh, in the event that you can't get your 2fa you can use one of these codes so that that should help reduce people's uh, i lost my phone i don't have my 2fa anymore well you do have the recovery codes right because we asked you to store and keep those because they're they're a secure tool. Oh no, I didn't. Well, now we have to do some other things and Okay. It's a far more complex process. So, uh yeah.
0: I got on the password manager bandwagon, I don't know, maybe 8 years ago. I was like, all right, I'm I'm really ramping up <laughs> with having to have lots and lots and lots of passwords and so I you know, started using 1Password, but I also use Apple's thing. So I'm kind of in the thing where I'm juggling two things. But both of them allow you to do those sort of secure note kind of things, which I I would think that is a decent place to put it as opposed to potentially printing it and putting it away somewhere. Do you have any other suggestions or or are you using a password manager system yourself?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think everyone should be using a password manager, right? Which one you use is up to you and your convenience, right? So I'm I'm a 1Password user. Other folks have really extolled the virtues of Bitwarden and some other mm-hmm. kind of tools out there. But I'd say use something because using yeah, the yeah. same password is just a real like that's a problem that should have stopped. I don't know, in the late 90s, right? But we, <laughs> we persist, we continue. And, and attackers know it, which is why some websites who are either storing like weak salted hashes of passwords or, oh, sorry, unsalted hashes or just in clear text that's a danger, right? If that that ever gets leaked, even the the hashes can be kind of reversed and, and looked up with a sufficiently powerful computer in, in enough time. So having the same password on multiple websites is just a big no go for me.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And like just Do take the time Do do the thing, do the right thing (laughs) to the point where I think even Google Chrome now has its own password manager built in. If you have a Google profile and you're into Chrome, so Apple has theirs and like everyone has one. I think Mozilla has a a good one for Firefox and it's just like, just, just use something. Right. Yeah, yeah. And for securing the uh, the the recovery codes, like if you have a printer, yeah, print those out, stick those in in your drawer with your like passport or or other things, right? Or put those as a secure note with your password manager. But keep in mind that that kind of puts those together. Right. 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 So. If you do lose your 2FA, that's when you should go and get your secure note. If you lose your password manager, you should absolutely go to PyPI and regenerate your recovery codes because those are not valid anymore. They've been exposed.
0: Yeah. So we mentioned the the key. uh, I forget the name of the key that Google was sending out. Uh, Titan. Titan. Okay. Besides that type of hardware thing, the other types of 2FA, you mentioned the the recovery code in case somebody loses their account, but are the other types of twoFA? Are they using something like um, Authy or some other kind of generator that's sending like a numeric code?
1: Yeah. So uh, when it comes to hardware, there's there's a few different vendors out there, and they'll you know there's uh, there's Google's Titan, there's YubiKey, there's FIDO keys, there's a bunch of different hardware options out there. Do you, right. do some background research and pick the one that matches your kind of lifestyle. But the key there is that when presented with the authentication challenge, you physically have to like press a button or touch something, right? Right. Uh, That way it's not just like, okay, this is always, always on. Then what's the point? No, you have to take action, plug it into your computer and press a button, which that's fine, right? That's very secure because if you don't have that, then you're not getting in. Right On that front, the 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 passkey protocol is using a lot of the same mechanics of WebAuthn or Web authentication. So if you have a browser that supports this, uh, like Safari, Apple Safari, right, will support uh, Web authentication. You can now use your browser identity as a second factor, which when your browser is presented with that, it kicks that request back to the operating system. the operating system asks you to validate yourself with like either a password or a fingerprint usually to say, all right, well, that's something you have, right? It's not hardware, but it's kind of (laughs) hardware. It's with you. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Hopefully, um, unless uh, something really bad happens. Right, Right. Exactly. But, uh, so those are those are kind of like the hardware or web authentication style, and the uh, the other one is a, a time based one time password, and those are kind of those numerical six digit tokens that okay. kind of get rotated throughout. And uh, yeah, those you can use any generator, Google Authenticator, One Password, anybody who's got some mechanism for for creating and storing those those unique tokens okay and that they generate every 30 seconds so they're valid for a very short amount of time yeah there's a lot of these terms that kind
0: of get thrown around and so i'm glad we're kind of clarifying a lot of them as we kind of talk about this one of them is a trusted publisher and i'm not sure where that kind of fits in there there's an
1: abbreviation of oidc in there i think too but um Do you think you could talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. So trusted publishers. So up until now, we've been basically talking about how you as a human attest to your identity and kind of security to say, I am who I say I am, and I'm allowed to do these things, right? Authentication and authorization. When it comes to publishing software, we uh, you know we often will say okay i can now attest to who i am and i would like to take this action right i would like to right. publish this this package to pypi via an upload and you do that by you know there's a variety of different tools but a very popular one is called twine and twine will take your api token and say all right i'm going to put it in there since many of us uh, like to do a an, semi-automated release process or a kind of a, a machine doing the police, uh, release process as opposed to a human mm-hmm. right like sure if it's my my dinky little side project that i want to play with i can do that from my laptop no problem but if i want a more repeatable process uh, that is not tied to one human. I'll often look to like a tool like GitHub Actions, a Jenkins, a, a, a Circle CI, like one, one of these semi automated platforms to take actions for me. Okay. And when it came to publishing, so very often what we do is we'll delegate or give that that credential for publishing to that service. Right. So, in theory, let's use GitHub Actions for for our uh, example here. In theory, I have to create a, an API token, give it to GitHub Actions securely, okay. right, uh, through their web interface, and then say, all right, GitHub Actions, when you are publishing to PyPI, use this token. So, what this does is it creates a long-lived token that GitHub Actions has to now worry about securing. Which I, I, I trust that they're working pretty hard to do that. Okay. But it's still a long-lived token. If anything happens to that token, number one, if I invalidate it because I'm a human and I'm, I'm you know I go to the website and I'm like, all right, invalidate this token, I've now broken my publishing process, right? Which I'll only find out next time I try and publish because then you know the token will be invalid, <laughs> right? Right. Um, alarm bells <laughs> alarm bells right and it's like no crap i need to publish this hotfix right now and now i'm hunting for api tokens right or worse it gets exposed somehow on that side and then somebody can act as as me so what we did was we kind of evaluated different approaches and OIDC which stands for open id connect which is a layer on top of the OAuth 2.0 protocol for uh, open authentication, is this notion where we can set some metadata on either side of the equation on both PyPI and GitHub uh, actions to say, when I'm going to publish this package, please go get a very short-lived token from PyPI that will allow me to do this through the OIDC protocol. By setting the metadata on PyPI to say the publishing or a trusted publisher is a GitHub Actions at a given repository at a given user at a given workflow file, that workflow file, when it fires on GitHub Actions, will try I can uh, through through a different publishing action reach out to PyPI say I am GitHub Actions I'm trying to do this for Mike's project. Can you give me a token, please? And it'll say, well, are you using the right the right metadata? Are you are you exchanging the right the right identities for GitHub Actions? You are okay, cool. Here's a five minute token or 10 minute token that you can use to publish for for Mike's project. GitHub Actions takes that token, produces it into its its upload step, and then uploads it to PyPI. Nice. So no long lived tokens exist in either on either side.
0: That's great. That's gonna save a lot of uh, you know it's again closing another vector another area <laughs> yeah for people to kind of get in there and for those larger projects i would guess that this sort of continuous integration and deployment sort of stuff is really common i mean i hear about github actions it's nice that you can just literally yourself as you're applying a your own github process pushing something there that it can then go through the process of uploading it and, and uh, publishing it to the package index. That's fantastic.
1: Yeah. We have all the documentation on how to, how to take advantage of this on docs.pypi.org. Okay. And we can drop a link to that, but the, the key there, uh, I keep using key. The, the important part <laughs> of this, uh, this process is if you're already using GitHub Actions today to publish to PyPI, the change is about seven lines. All right. And you're done, right? Like we, we, we've tried to make it very easy to do the right thing.
0: What do you think the, the number of people doing that are? I mean, we've been throwing out percentages here and there, but is it a pretty common? I don't know
1: yet. I think somebody on our team put together a dashboard for that. I don't remember. Um, okay. Yep, there's a trusted publisher dashboard. Let's see. Uh, there's about just under 4,000 projects that are using trusted publishers so far. Nice. Yeah, that's about you know 1% of all projects on PyPI, but there's a lot of projects that I will... I would never expect it to see 100% because there's a lot of projects that are like from 20 years ago that aren't going to get updated, that, you know, that's fine, right? Yeah. So I think it's uh, it's a matter of how many active projects, and maybe we need to reframe our, our kind of analysis to, to show that, like, projects published in the past year, are they using trusted publishing or not?
0: This week, I want to shine a spotlight on another RealPython video course. It fits in nicely, with all the news and stories we had this week about the Python Packaging Index, PyPI. It's titled Publishing Python Packages to PyPI. The course is based on an article by Gerarna Hjela, and my co-host, Christopher Trudeau, is the instructor. And he's going to take you through why packages and virtual environments exist, how to use build systems, what are the contents of the PyProject.toml file, how to use the build and twine tools, and what the Poetry and Flit tools offer. And most importantly, you'll learn all about the structures of a package and how to upload your own to the PyPI server. I think it's a valuable investment of your time to learn how to share your work using the standard tools within the Python community. And like all the video courses on RealPython, the course is broken into easily consumable sections. Plus, you get additional resources and code examples for the techniques shown. All of our course lessons have a transcript, including closed captions. Check out the video course. You can find a link in the show notes, or you can find it using the enhanced search tool on realpython.com. So I guess that kind of makes me think about those older projects that have been sort of sitting around for a long time. If a person comes along They've ignored all the emails you've sent (laughs) and all the (laughs) announcements. They haven't listened to this podcast. They've kind of just like continued on and they're like, oh, what's their experience going to be? It's going to be that, I'm sorry, you can't contribute an, an update until you... Go through this process of setting it up. Is that going to be their experience?
1: A little bit, yeah. So right now we've, uh, you know, as of I guess early August, we've already enabled that any new users signing up to PyPI must enable two FA before they continue, right? Okay. So it's kind of the like mechanism to push people that will remain forever, right? So if you sign into PyPI in you know, next year, and you hadn't signed in for two years, the UI will tell you, okay, you need to go set up 2FA and, yeah. and do some things, right? I'm not entirely certain how the, like, the publishing response will will respond. It might respond with just a 403 unauthorized, which, again, should hopefully prompt somebody to go log in PyPI, see, oh, okay, I need to do these things. But Right, because they might be
0: using just, like, a, a tool they've used in the past that Tries to go through all the things that you talked about before, where it's like it should be grabbing my token and just and pushing this thing upward,
1: right? Uh, so I think if you're using a, a, a token that it's still valid, right? That's fine. But if you're not using two FA, then that's a problem, right? Okay. So we launched an email campaign, not to just email everybody, but to because that that's not gonna be helpful. A lot of people who haven't been <laughs> publishing or that's you know we have uh, what. I don't know, 700,000 user accounts, something like that. That's a lot of users. Yeah. But instead, what we we did was on publish, if you are publishing to PyPI with a token from an account that does not have 2FA enabled, we'll send you an email say, Hey, here's what's happening, here's what to do about it. You also might want to look at trusted publishers. But uh yeah, yeah. but generally speaking, it's we're we're trying to get the word out as best we can. Cool. Is there anything else you wanted to, to add? Uh, just that, you know, security is an ongoing evolution, right? Like the, the world doesn't kind of stop just because something was delivered. People come up with new creative ways of doing things, right? right. The security that we, we are worried about today isn't the security that we worried about five years ago, 10 years ago, and so on and so forth, as evidenced by, you know, HEP protocols evolving, TLS protocols evolving, just things, things evolve. Yeah. So this is I guess our, our our best effort right now of what we know will help these particular scenarios. Is it the end? No. Is it you know, the middle? I don't know, but it's definitely not the beginning, right? So like it's it's an ongoing effort that we all have to contribute to. I think the biggest and best security defense is kind of a, a critical mind, right? You know, when you're presented with a pop-up on a page or when you're presented with it, when somebody sends you an email from a domain you've never seen before, take a moment before clicking links and, and signing into web forms. Just yeah. think about it for just a second, like pause, because <laughs> I can't be there to hold your hand on every, <laughs> on every bit, right, right. but the best defense is you in front of a keyboard, in front of a screen.
0: Yeah, one of the things I that at least comes up I don't know, it's a headline grabbing kind of thing is the typo squatting thing. Uh, I don't know if that falls into your purview also and not putting you on the spot saying, well, what's your answer to that right now?
1: I mean, obviously. It's, t- it's different
0: because it's not necessarily going to be in a bill of materials. It's more like a, a person who's in a hurry is potentially going to hit that typo. But yeah, do you want to talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah. I mean, typo squatting is a fun one, right? Because yeah. Yeah. You know, ultimately, we are human. We are, we do make mistakes, right? So we type things in, and then we hope we type them correctly, right? God knows I have all written some <laughs> bugs in my time, right? All right. And the the typo squatting threat is if I were to take a very popular package and either replace one of the letters or reverse some of the orders, so that way, if you were typing requests very quickly, you might forget the S at the end. So if I publish a package called request, I have a likelihood of somebody downloading it because they made a typo, right? Right. And we get very similar to malicious packages. We do get typo squatting reports from, from the community to us to say, hey, this package looks very, very suspicious. It's sitting on request Z you know, or request A, right? Because the <laughs> A is right next to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have implemented a couple of, like, algorithmic detections in, in the warehouse code base that, that serves PyPI to look at some typo squaring, but it's not perfect, right? It's humans are humans and algorithms are algorithms. What we have to tread the line is like maintaining flexibility for folks who want to come up with a creative name and, and publish it right? versus, well, how do you own this name? It's, it's just a word, right? And it's got some letters and, and numbers in it. So we, we kind of have to tread that fine line of like, well, what is, what is a typo squat? What is not a typo squat? And so the algorithmic stuff kind of prevents some of it, but the other aspect that I would recommend to folks is, you are, you know, taking the time to install a package, right? You could go to pypi.org, find the right package via the search, and then copy it letter for letter, character from character on the website. Yeah. Or you can copy it from your known packages, etc. But even more importantly, is once you've gotten the right one, to use some sort of package version and hash pinning. Yeah. So that way the version and package that you got will be the same one you get the next time you do a a pip install or a poetry install or whichever tool you 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 like and what that manifests as is you know at the time i've installed it i'm going to say well i want requests i want request version xyz and using a, a tool like pip tools uh, pip compile or poetry or you know all all of the other ones that have lock files uh with hashes compile the okay this version is on this that this has these hashes for these files so that way if anyone were to man in the middle or replace those those packages the the client software should like fail and say this isn't the same hash that that i that i uh had previously yeah, hash pinning is very common in other arenas if you use javascript dependencies or or style sheets on on your uh, on your website in html there's a service re- uh, resource integrity sri tag so if you're downloading javascript from you know one of the popular cdn providers you can add in a hash of that package so you can trust that what you're getting is what you originally signed up for.
0: Okay. Yeah, we've talked about that a handful of times. And I know there's been some movements I've had Brett Cannon on talking about his goal to try to add the lock files in some kind of very official capacity. And, and it's still, I think that movement's still there and we're wanting things like that. But um, yeah, it's interesting to, to think about like making sure that whole supply chain is secure across the, across the line.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, one of, the, one of the big challenges, right? Like Python is about 30 years old. PyPI is about 20 years old as a as a concept. There are packages that have been written, produced, that are everywhere. And everyone uses Python in some fashion somehow, right? Like even if you're not using it directly, some service you're relying on does, right? Yeah. So everyone's got it. So when it comes to the just the sheer volume of potential use cases that's something that we as a python and packaging community have to evolve relatively carefully because the potential fallout for making a mistake or, or breaking some compatibility with somebody so we try to evolve it relatively slowly and provide a long, long kind of um, amount of information and time for people to see the deprecation warning, see the error message, do the thing, update yeah. uh, in a timely fashion. But it's 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 really hard to make the decision for how everything ought to work so there's a bunch of different working groups and, and and folks who are invested in making these uh these things work and to anybody out there who is like well it doesn't work for my use case i highly encourage check out the different working groups and get involved with discuss.python.org the online uh you know community for for discussions just get involved if if you don't like it t- tell people why and you know get involved
0: <laughs> yeah Join the conversation,
1: yeah. Yeah. Don't just sit on the sidelines and snipe, right? Like, get get in the game. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just want to
0: mention that you were on, uh, is it called V Brown Bag? Uh, I'm trying to think of the name of the podcast, but you had done a a kind of a nice talk about, the title of it is How to Give Back to Open Source Without Losing Your Mind. <laughs> and it's on YouTube, and I'll include a link to it. And we had a discussion, uh, Christopher and I, a couple weeks back about, Getting involved and making those first contributions and so forth. And you mentioned a website that I wasn't familiar with. Um, we had talked about using search methodology to try to find good first issues, but then you mentioned a, a website literally titled goodfirstissues.dev, um, which is really neat. I, I, I like it because you can kind of type Python or uh, bring a pull down in menu and choose Python in there. But yeah, it's a really kind of neat way. I don't know if there's anything you want to add to that with Hacktoberfest. We're kind of landing in the middle of October here with this ep- episode, but.
1: Any suggestions or things that uh, thoughts you
0: have about uh, that that talk?
1: Yeah, so that's uh, V Brown Bag with Chris Williams, who's a, a dear friend. He's a fellow a- AWS hero. Uh, that's how we met originally. Okay. In that program, and we hang out online now and then, and in person when when we can. But uh, the the V Brown Bag session on open source, it was just a, like, hey, Mike, you're working in this space, like let's talk about it, right? Yeah, and. I, I just really am thankful for the opportunity to be able to just talk about, like, here's how I did it, right? Here's, here's my process. Here's how I got involved. Here's why I do it. Uh, and here are some things that I've learned along the way. Are they going to be 100% translatable to anybody else? I don't, probably not. But, you know, maybe somebody else out there can say, you know what, that resonates with me. I can do that. I think one of the first commits that I have on, like, Ruby Core was a typo fix and it's like that's great right like i fixed something that was wrong yeah yeah and everyone else now benefits from that like just a few characters that were fixed it's like uh, minor polishes on the on, <laughs> on the on the world right yeah yeah and every every software ecosystem is going to be slightly different so you know i i highly recommend checking out you know good first issues the hacktoberfest guidelines and then before doing any contribution check out the source code to see if they have contributing guidelines, right? Yeah, yeah. There's nothing worse than just getting a, a poorly formatted patch that doesn't like, conform. It's like, all right, you just added work to the maintainer to say thanks, but no thanks. So take a few minutes and check out what they've gotten in their contributing guidelines to say, we prefer it this way, we like it that way, we don't accept contributions at all, right? Like, don't, you know, <laughs> yeah, just... Yeah. just Yeah, which would be a bad experience. Get get the lay of the land. And, uh, you know, I'll I'll call out one uh, software contribution process for the Postgres database. The Postgres database, yeah, you can read the code on GitHub, but they don't accept pull requests. They still go through a mailing list with patches process, Mm. which, you know, has stood the test of 30 years of its existence, and it's the best open source database out there. And it's... It's, it's a process and you can learn a lot, but it helps weed out the low volume, like the low quality contributions. Sure. And it kind of like, okay, if you're really willing to engage in our process, then you need to learn the process. <laughs> yeah. then you need to, learn yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: That makes sense. Cool. Yeah. So I have these weekly questions I like to ask everybody. And the first one is what's something that you're excited about in the world of Python?
1: Well, Today is uh, October fourth. I don't know when this is going to drop exactly, but uh, Python three twelve just landed a couple days ago, yeah. which is a- an excellent release. We do one every year, and this one's out. Yay! Yeah. <laughs> so I'm excited about the you know the ongoing performance improvements that uh, that the faster Python movement is working on, uh, because I don't know if you saw, but when like three. Eleven dropped. We uh, we put it on PyPI and saw like a forty to fifty percent CPU drop, and it was like, yeah, we, all we did was upgrade, and everything just got faster. Nice, right? As a result, how excellent is that? Those are excellent evolutions. I think in the Python ecosystem, I I'm a fan of seeing how type hints evolve. They're a hundred percent optional. They, you know, people are very much opinionated on the like strongly typed versus strict typed. And it's like, it's optional, yeah, right? yeah. You don't have to do it. If you want to do it, you can. And here's some good ways to do it. I found that with some of the libraries that I've written, it they're very helpful to kind of help, again, hint to the developer what they might be doing wrong before they have to write piles of tests and find out in production that something went wrong. <laughs> so yeah. uh, I'm, a, I'm a fan with the evolution and progress that we're seeing along those fronts every uh version
0: we we talk about it and there's always something something new and uh as i've watched it on the sidelines having done a little bit of type checking stuff and i did a course on it originally just to kind of learn about it myself it's been nice watching the complex things kind of become like a little nicer and cleaner and easier to look at and so that's that's always a good enhancement each year yeah Cool. So, what's something that you want to learn next? Again, this doesn't have to be programming or Python related.
1: It's something you want to learn. Something I want to learn. Um. So I've been, I've been kind of throughout my career. I've always inherited software systems. Right. I've never okay. kind of like built something from scratch. Right. It's 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 rare. Right. That you get full greenfield development, and when it it has presented itself. It's always been like, okay, this is a small service that does a very particular thing, and then it grows over time, and, and usually it's replacing some other functionality. So you have this notion of uh, kind of a, a soft roadmap ahead of you because you're implementing features that existed, and then you're going to add them in the new service. Okay, I, I recently just started toying around with Django from scratch for the very first time as opposed to kind of inheriting a system and uh, and kind of improving it. Now I'm trying to, like, okay, write a Django app from scratch, and this time I'm trying to use very little JavaScript, so uh, I'm looking at the HTMX Uh, um, edition, which I know some folks have done some tutorials on, and uh, it's, it's a really cool idea where... I don't have to take on the burden of a JavaScript stack in my Python universe. So I'm I'm excited to kind of play around with those and and learn more about how they interoperate well. You have to let
0: me know if you have any suggestions of somebody to come on to talk about it. Because I've been looking at it for maybe two and a half years. And uh, my co-host is doing a book about django christopher trudeau he comes on to talk about stuff and he's doing a a django book and he just is finishing up his htmx chapter but i keep i keep looking at it and going oh this actually might be a a, a nice thing to learn and again you know things to remove other language dependencies is maybe good (laughs) so
1: yeah, I, I think I'm also excited to see where we go with other web enabled Python. So there was PyScript that came out or yeah, yeah. Uh, and then compiling C Python to Wasm, which you mentioned, Brett Cannon. He's he's working on some of that too. Yeah. So I'm excited to see where we go with making Python a first class citizen of the web.
0: Yeah, definitely. So, how can people follow the work that you do online? I think you mentioned the, the blog, so maybe you should reiterate that, but uh, other ways that people can follow what you're
1: doing. Yeah. So, uh, I, I blog about what I'm doing on PyPI at blog.pypi.org. Personally, I'm on Mastodon. I'm, uh, I'm Mike the Man at hackyderm.io. Okay. And uh, you can also just find all the links of my personal blog and everything on mike.feedler.me. Uh, okay. mike.feedler.me. That's
0: yeah. <laughs> well I want to thank you Mike for coming on the show it's been fantastic to talk to you and uh, thanks for informing us and making everybody aware of
1: uh, the upcoming looming deadline <laughs> <laughs> thanks so much for having me I, it's, it's great to just chat about what we're doing
0: I want to thank Mike Fiedler for coming on the show this week and I want to thank you for listening to the Real Python podcast Make sure that you click that follow button in your podcast player. And if you see a subscribe button somewhere, remember that the Real Python podcast is free. If you like the show, please leave us a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com slash podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea. I've been your host, Christopher Bailey, and I look forward to talking to you soon.